electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, guys, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. Stocks, rates, where your money will work best, where the bargains are. Even as the 10 years on the move again, we're going to debate the road ahead for your money with our investment committee today. Joining me for the hour, Brenda Vingello, the CIO of Sandhill Global Advisors. Jim Labenthal is here. Steve Weiss, John and Jerry. Nice to see everybody. Nice day for the Dow. Tries to set a new high. NASDAQ reverses an early loss. S&P is good. Positive territory, as is the Russell. There is the 10-year note yield at 161. Oh, by the way, we're also monitoring another hearing with those bank CEOs on Capitol Hill today to keep our eyes peeled on that for any heat that comes out of it. Maybe dip into uh, a little of that if we have to. But Farmer Jim, I'm going to begin with you today because, man, you've got to be a happy man today. And we need a laugh on this show. It's Boeing. General, we need to smile. Boeing, General Motors, Cleveland Cliffs, Qualcomm, NXP. Should I go on? I mean, you want me to go on? Yes. I, it, it, it's I, I it's a good you day, go on, Scott. Scott. And, you know, <laughs> hey, Steve, you could have been in these stocks. I know you're still in Cleveland Cliffs, but it is a good day. And it's not just for me and you, Scott. It's for the nation, right? Think about what these stocks are doing. This is Cleveland Cliffs, an iron ore and steel manufacturer. We're going to be building things. And we've got chip shortages easing in the, in the auto sector. So GM is going to start building the cars that people want to buy. You got Boeing flying high. I mean, this is those names are fabulous names for this economy, and Qualcomm's doing well. So, you know, we can make this about me. We can make it about you and me, Scott. But I think it's more important to say that this economy is doing really darn well. It's going to show up in profits for these companies. We should all feel pretty good today. It is all about you, Jim, which is just driving Steve Weiss <laughs> crazy. <laughs> Tweeting earlier today, damn that Jim Labenthal. I have to be on halftime with him when all of his stocks are working Talk about bad luck, which got us thinking, Steve, maybe you just need to hear a little music. Maybe you just need it. It's tough, Steve. It's tough. It it, it is tough. I'm glad to see Jim experience how I've been living the last uh, few years in terms of performance (laughs) of stock. So, So welcome to the club. Hope you can stay longer than a day, Jim. Uh, No, look, hey. The, what's surprising today is that you've got the bond market, the 10-year, doing reversal that it started to do at the close yesterday. And yet, technology's up. Uh, as you point out, Qualcomm, the others are up. And uh, we've got also the industrial complex, commodities. They're all working today. And I think what it is, is what we saw yesterday was that we had a couple of, of, of Fed heads talking about how we have started discussing tapering. I think the market's actually glad to see that, glad to see they won't let inflation run away because more so than rates running away, it's actual inflation because that leads to those much higher rates. And that's what kills markets uh, and can kill for an extended period of time. 
So taking comfort in that. At the same time, as I was thinking about, hey, why, why is the 10-year so low? What, what's going on? And when you think that, that you got to come out to two conclusions. Either I have no idea what's going, going on here, so let me adjust my portfolio. And if you short the 10-year or the bonds, then you get out. Or you say, you know what, I'm convinced I'm right. This is an opportunity to actually double down that trade. So I was not short bonds before, but I am short them now. I was short them after the show yesterday because it made no sense Ultra where they short. were. Ultra as we short, see from right? The economic you, you bought the TBT. Ultra short. Well, I mean, he, it, it, it's worth noting, right. too, that just because you think rates should be up, this is kind of part of the conversation we had yesterday, doesn't mean they're going to go up, right? I mean, 161 on the 10 right. year. I think most people agree that given the fundamentals of the economy, that the 10 year should be a lot higher than it currently is, and it is not. So you buy the, the right. TBT because you still think by year end we'll be 2% or above. That's correct. And the reason why I did the ultra, and I hate ultras, I don't do them in stocks, I don't do them in markets, but I have to do them in bonds because the movement in bonds is relatively small. So if you want to make money or want to use it as an appropriate hedge, which it's both, frankly, for me, then you've got to do the ultras there. So this is not a short-term trade, but if you look at the risk-reward, will you see a 1-4 handle in 10-year? I don't think so. If you do, once again, I don't think so. It's not impossible. It'll be for a nanosecond. So I've got a 150 as my downside on rates, on the yield, and I've got over 2%. Now, what I'm short is a 20-year. It doesn't matter. I did that because it's the most liquidity in that rather than shorting the 7-10-year to 10 year ultra. Here's the here's here's the issue, Brenda. Right. Uh, rates are where they are. And if rates are where they are, then growth, then Fang, which you own almost all of them. Right. The mega cap tech names will work. And maybe that's one of the reasons why they've woken up and started you know, performing again, because over the last week they have for the most part. The gains aren't tremendous, but nonetheless, they are acting well again um, if rates continue to move up maybe they won't work but let's play the hand we have right now in front of us do you like where the fangs can go from here I think it's important to hold the fangs as part of a diversified portfolio. Obviously, it was a tough first quarter and really has been tough for this for a lot of the names in this group since September of last year, but particularly in the first quarter when rates did did see a significant move higher. But here we are, and you know what? Valuations have come down for the group. We saw significant earnings growth during that time from September to today. Uh, so they are certainly looking a little bit more attractive from a valuation standpoint. I also think they're important from a safety standpoint, because if we do get a growth scare for some reason, I think the market's just going to rotate right back into these growth names. So I think as part of a diversified allocation, it's still important to have exposure here. You know, but we also pair this with some exposure to more cyclical groups, which we have really been adding to um, more meaningfully over the last year. Uh, so I think it's important to have exposure to both. Um, we've seen a lot of oscillation in the market from one day to the next, one week to the next. I mean, really, over the for the year-to-date period, it's still those cyclical groups that are working. But I absolutely think it's important to have some diversification within a portfolio. Okay, Doc, let's play off of what uh, Brenda's talking about. Valuation, they've come down on the fangs. Rates are still low. Mm -hmm. That's why Jim Cramer said this. Let's listen. We react on the other side. All right. A great man, a man who owns the Panthers. And he's befuddled. Why? I was talking to him yesterday. Taught me bonds. 
I'm talking Dave Tepper. He thinks the bond market, like everybody else, is a short. But if the bonds are telling the truth, which they often do, then the cheapest stock in this market are FANG. And I think FANG's back. Doc, what do you think about what Mr. Kramer has to say? Mm, I I normally agree with Jim, and I'm not going to part from that right now, Scott. I agree. Uh, When I look at the outperformance in the FANG group, it starts off with that first, the F, with Facebook. It's up 28% in the last three months. And that's with everybody sniping at them. That's with uh, folks saying, well, Europe is going to impose this. The U.S. may impose that. And yet it's up double what the next closest competitor, I guess, probably is Google it's up 5%. over the past three months. It's up 5% this week. Exactly. So, I mean, F or Facebook is the one that's really providing that oomph. And a lot of the rest of it's got Amazon, Apple, my biggest holding and so forth, um, are, you know, moving along. But I'm looking at gains of 4 to 7% over the past three months, a far cry from Facebook. So, yes, Jim is right. And I think that a lot of that sideways sort of trade, Scott, um, that some of those names within FANG have done, um, I think that continues until we end this quarter. And then I think they do start to catch up to Facebook and outperform. Why? Well, because then we're heading into um, more of a full economy. Right now, we know, and I'm sure you see it every day, Scott, that you go out and Uh, businesses that would like to be supplying what the demand is out there can't do it. Whether it's chips, whether it's restaurants, they can't do it right now. Um, But I think as we get out of the second quarter, they will be able to provide more. And I think that really gives the oomph to a lot of these stocks. Then they catch up to the likes of Facebook. But right now, with still 8 million people out of work, Facebook, one of the top spots people go for ads, on the internet when they want to push their product. You hear my buddy Kevin O'Leary say that all the time. Number one pick, Facebook. And it's demonstrating that in spades over the past uh, 90 days. Weiss, I mean, I, I feel like we have a great conundrum here. And, and your TBT trade today really hits right in the center of the, the, the bullseye of, of this conversation. This is a, a trade that you've made based on what should be and who knows whether it's going to be, right? Why not just play with what you have right here and now, Steve? Rates are low. Why not buy growth? You're selling growth. You got out of the altimeter growth fund. As much as you like Brad Gerstner, you think rates are going to continue to go up. That's guiding the way you're trading this market. Well, I think there's an opportunity to make money in both. So I'm staying away from the high I wouldn't even call high P.E. stocks because like Snowflake, the losses are ballooning. They're not decreasing, not making any money. I'm staying away from the high, very high revenue stocks in terms of, you know, price to revenue. But I still have a lot of growth in the portfolio. I mean, you know, as I mentioned over of the preceding few weeks, I added to Corvo. I added to Skyworks, you know, and, and I've added to others. So so I think you can they can coexist, but the rates will hurt those highly valued stocks, high valuation stocks, more than anything else, you know? And it's where you see growth. I see huge, huge growth in Volkswagen and Porsche, you know? I mean, look, you've got Tesla out there that's selling 500,000 cars a year. Uh, Volkswagen will sell the same amount this year in EVs, 
just EVs. I've got it seven, eight times earnings. So look, I think you can coexist with both. And again, you know, the beauty about the TBT trade is that I will be right. It's just a question of when. So we will see 2% in the 10-year. We will see a steepening yield curve. So it may not take a month. This is not a trade. This is going through the end of the year and maybe longer. Let me ask, let me ask you this. As someone uh, just pointed out on, on Twitter, uh, Joe Fami, who, you know, we've, who's, he's a good follow, is talking about the reaction of Snowflake to its earnings, right? We, yes. we came off of yes. Doc, Doc, we, we came off of what was a disappointing post-earnings reaction for the, for the mega cap techs, right? Snowflake's in mm -hmm. the high valuation category. It may be the poster child in, in that category. And it's trying to turn green. Fami says that's a statement. Look at that. What do you oh, think, it Doc? Is. It, well, uh, like you say, Joe Fami, uh, great follow and uh, good friend of the show and so forth. Um, that particular move, it opened at about 221, Scott, and it was lower than that in the pre-market. Um, and then people began to dismiss. They were worried, of course, about those losses that just keep stacking up, even though the revenue or sales continue to grow. Um, it's a question of, OK, at what point do you lose patience and say, you got to start cutting into that? Some people thought that was today, early on. And then it just reversed and did that huge moonshot um, from the left to the right on the chart. And Joe is exactly right. Um, that's a statement move to move from 221 or sub 220 in the pre-market to 234-ish uh, just before we came on air. Mm -hmm. I think that tells you that not only did an investment newsletter come out, which did come out after the early morning activity, but also um, a lot of people are saying, I will give them another quarter to see whether or not that loss gets cut into and or whether if they stay on this trajectory, they can even go into the black as far as, you know, this growth stock that, again, Warren Buffett embraced this one. There's not an awful lot outside of when he jumped into Apple because of his portfolio managers. There's not an awful lot of tech in Warren's portfolio, but he was a true believer in this one. And I think you're seeing that play out to a number of other managers today. Scott. And maybe, just maybe, Mike Santoli, who is with us now, our senior markets commentator, this is a sign of where risk sentiment is in the reaction in a snowflake can tell a lot. Yeah, Scott, it's getting some traction. Now, obviously, you have to kind of look within uh, some of the intraday action, some of the multi-month action in the context of a long trading range to see, in fact, that you did have risk sentiment maybe make a little bit of a bottom in some of the high-growth names, maybe like Snowflake, in small caps, arguably. You know, the Russell 2000 is trading where it was back more than five months ago in February. It's gone very flat sideways, but it looks like it's getting kind of compressed, and we got a big pop uh, in that index yesterday. Micro caps yesterday uh, as a group up 3% versus 2% for the small caps. So it seems as if there's a return uh, to perhaps some of the more aggressive parts of this market. Another index that I think is a decent tell, at least recently, is what's called the S&P completion index. It's everything in the market except the S&P 500. Yes, it's going to be a ton of small stocks, thousands of them, but it's also very large stocks that are either recent IPOs or just not in the S&P. That's like Square. That's like Snowflake. That's like Uber. And that has started to, in a short-term way, outperform a little bit. So it doesn't, to me, mean that it's all back to uh, kind of, you know, full speed ahead 
uh, headlong risk taking and we're going to go, you know, full meme stop stock again, even if uh, that's uh, percolating as well. But it <laughs> does know. mean. We kind of are. It we does mean that, are. Yeah, I know. I mean, look, they're trying. And I don't think the fuel is there, frankly. I mean, these are not as heavily shorted as they were a few months ago. But we'll see how uh, it plays out, because a lot of times that's a self-fulfilling uh, exercise in the short term. So I think that, that there's enough there to say that the market is uh, is essentially getting comfortable uh, with the outlook. We probably had a, a crescendo of enthusiasm for the acceleration of the rebound economically. You know, we did see, you know, commodities put in a bit of a peak. You saw uh, macro sentiment really get very excited. And then, of course, you've seen Treasury yields come in and be in this range for a while before, again, uh, picking up a little bit. So I think that all fits together, arguably, uh, with a little bit more of a, of, a, of a firmer risk posture. But again, it's a trading range for right now, and we're just revisiting the high end of it in the S&P. Maybe, um, you know, look, for lack of a better thing, Steve Weiss, it's the, the Steve Weiss contrarian indicator. <laughs> I don't know. A lot of people, a lot of people, so? Steve, are increasing their exposure to equities. I mean, I've been speaking with some big players in the market who are getting a little more heavily invested, you know, the, the, the fact that interest rates aren't running away when you've got two Fed speakers come on this network and say, yeah, we're, we're, we're actually starting to talk about talk about uh, taper and the market doesn't fall out of bed. Maybe that's another sign, Steve, of that risk is about to come back in this market. Well, you know, I mentioned yesterday I took my cash position down from 35% to about 20%. I talked about Facebook, how I had added to that. I mentioned that last week, how it was going to break out to an all-time high. It did today. So that's another growth stock I own. As far as Snowflake and the others, Snowflake's a good company. They got a good CEO. I wouldn't say he's the best tech CEO in the world, like Kramer says. Well, I you're think mad, a, but you're just mad. But look, you're better. mad at his pay package, but, okay? You're but, mad. The pay... I don't even want. I don't want to have this debate. I, I think it's I mean, poor governance. Okay. I'm big. I'm big on governance, so I'm not going to get in that. But no, he doesn't have the track record of a Satya Nadella. He doesn't have the track record of even an Elon Musk. He doesn't have the track record of, of you know so many other save, uh, Salesforce.com. He doesn't have Mark's track record. You know record. what he does have, though? He's got two you, smaller companies. Now, you, I'm not saying you know, he's not you know, a good CEO, you, you but that's he, not the debate. You know what he that's does not have? That's the debate. No, no, the no. The stock is down. No, no, exactly. That's where I'm taking the Go debate ahead. because the stock's shaved 200 bucks off of 429 Right. That's the debate. It's right. not about his pay package. It's not about where he's, whether he's the greatest right. CEO who ever lived. It's the fact that you have a stock that people right. like that has shaved $200 off of its high. And now may be, as Dr. J is looking at, Doc, a great opportunity to get into a high growth name, even with a multiple that's big, but not as big as it once was. That's a greater conversation about where risk sentiment is, Dr. J. Indeed, well, Scott. Well, let and, me just uh, finish if know, I could. Pete, give me, hold on, Steve, real quick, please. Just let, let Dr. J respond, and okay. I promise I'll give you the next word. I <laughs> promise. Sure. All right. Uh, Scott, uh, Pete. Uh, was you know way ahead of me on this one, and he's been in Snowflake since at least the 190s when there was unusual activity a, a little over a week and a half ago. And he's talked about it on air. Um, that stock has a lot of institutional buy-in to what's been happening in here. So um, people can line up against this one just like they line up against Tesla or they've lined up against Amazon when they weren't profitable. And then 
uh, they've had to chase them for hundreds of points. Uh, I think that same sort of scenario could play out in a stock like Snowflake. What's the message, Brenda, in an NVIDIA, which you own, which is, I don't know, it's really not reacting well to uh, an earnings report and a number of price target raises. I'm, I'm looking at my sheet here. I don't know. There's 10 or 12 or what have you. Um, all, well, not all, but most, you know, nicely north of 700 bucks, 750s, some 775s, things like that. What's the message that it's not doing all that great today? I think we saw a pretty significant move just this year to date. If you look at NVIDIA, it's almost up almost 20%. So it really has exceeded the market. So I think you could say some of this was anticipated, although obviously had a phenomenal quarter. Uh, but I also think we have the overhang of the ARM acquisition uh, where there is still some uncertainty there. So that could be uh, contributing to some of this. But I really think, you know, the stock has moved materially already. So perhaps it's not a um, it's a do nothing on the news rather than um, rather than buy on the news, uh, given this a great report that we just saw. Mike, maybe, maybe this this conversation begins and ends with the Fed. Right. And the reason why you're even thinking about thinking about risk returning to this market um, is because maybe now the market finally believes that the Fed knows what it's doing and is going to get it right. I think investors, yes, are generally in tune with what currently seems like Fed's, the Fed's posture on things, uh, which is not to over-anticipate the moment when they're going to have to withdraw stimulus and, and accommodation, but to be mindful that we are perhaps tacking in that direction. Uh, and if the outlooks really pan out, then they might have to uh, do something here on the on the tapering front. So I think we did have the kind of most acute inflation scare for the moment last month. That's worked its way through. Uh, and so it doesn't seem as if the market feels that something has to happen very soon. But if they if they think that there are plenty of eyes on all the relevant indicators, uh, and meanwhile, they're not looking to kind of end the party. I mean, I think when you see things like, you know, the, you know, the, the, the Nasdaq and the small cap and the hyper growth stocks in ARC go down 30 percent in three months, that helps the Fed's cause because they don't have to worry about a market wide kind of bubbly type uh, backdrop as they make decisions based on what the economic indicators are going to be telling. Just such good points. The, the fact that the market has corrected can, can itself, right? The most frothy parts of the market, SPACs, NFTs, the ARC stocks, have all had their own comedowns. I mean, so it, in, in large respect, they've done exactly what Mike said. Um, Mike, I appreciate it very much. Steve Weiss, I promised you, go ahead. Okay, so first of all, I have been writing those stocks because they're down meaningfully. And it's not that I don't like their technology, it's that I don't like the company. I've got a discipline. My discipline is not to buy stocks trading 50 to 100 to 125 you know, times revenue. That's my discipline. Other people want to do it. God bless them. All the more power to them. As far as Buffett being in there, I'd be very careful about that. He got in at $120 per share on the pre-IPO round. He's got a double on it. I wouldn't be surprised to see him selling the stock. But the pitch to him on getting is, we're going to IPO. Here's the valuation we're going to IPO. This is found money, and we'd love to have you in because having Warren Buffett in is going to have people like John and others saying, wow, Buffett loves this. He's a value player. How can I not? I'd look for him to exit. This is not something he's going to hold for a long That's time. That's all right. I Period. mean, I, I, really, I really think, um, and, and, your, and your point's fine, I, I really think um, – that this may be the place to continue to look for 
a gauge of where I'm looking at my screen as I'm talking to you because now the stock's up almost 1% for a gauge of where risk Bang. sentiment is. And, you know, maybe the Fed is a big Near part term, of it. You're right. I'm sorry? No, near term, you're absolutely right. I think these stocks continue to move. Yeah. But we um, get a PCE number tomorrow. We'll see what that means. Yeah. Oh, you're, you're right. A hundred percent. Look, maybe the, the market is finally giving the Fed the benefit of the doubt. Richard Fisher, he's the former president of the Dallas Fed. Current Fed critic, maybe I can call him that. I don't think he'll take offense to that. Maybe he will. Richard, nice to see you. Well, I'm not a critic. I'm a constructive commentator. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> But look, you, you think the Fed's doing too much, Richard. You've criticized that. Well, just listening to this good conversation, here's what we can say. The sign has changed. We're now in a reflation, regrowth mode. We know the direction where rates are going to go. It, the tenure is settling in at a nice little range here, somewhere between 150-something and 170. But as we go through time with the employment numbers as good as they have been. You know, three states, California, Texas, and New York, created 3.3 million jobs in April to April. So we know where things are going. We know what's gonna happen to consumer spending. We have federal largesse still. And achieving the employment numbers now is much more possible. So I think the Fed will be very tender here and very careful but it's clear at this next meeting, there'll be some expression that comes out of it, probably in Jay's, uh, Jay Powell's press conference, that yes, indeed, they've begun to begin the beginning of thinking or whatever they're saying uh, about uh, slowing down monetary accommodation over time. So we know that's the direction that things are going. And I, a very good point was just made. I think market operators have become more comfortable with this. I would dispute that the inflation uh, tremors are over because the way businesses operate, you don't just change overnight. You're going to have to adjust their everything from capex to their spending patterns, uh, their receivables, and also their payables uh, to forces that will come into play over a year or two, certainly the rest of this year and next year. But I think there is more confidence in the Fed right now. Mm -hmm. I think they're handling it well. And to hear even the San Francisco Fed come out and give a nice dovish uh, or more hawkish comment. Yeah, Mary Daly. Yeah, that's a big sign. So this is deliberately being engineered. I think they're doing a good job of it. It's not no longer just the Dallas Fed, my successor, Mr. Kaplan, but it seems to be a consistent message. And that's what you want. Market operators want to hear what the overall theme is and want to reduce uncertainty. Well, why do so we, I think why do we keep why do we keep looking over the Fed's shoulder, though, Richard? I mean, if you were still the president of the Dallas Fed, you, you wouldn't want everybody looking over your own shoulder. You'd be like, what are you guys talking about? We're going to get it right. We know what we're doing. Why are we second guessing a Fed that hasn't made a mistake? They've yet to make a mistake. You can say right. that they've done too much for too long. That's different from making a mistake. Why are we suggestive that they're going to this time? Well, I don't think they are. I think it's a matter of timing. Again, we know the direction. The question is the speed with which they do it. And what they're clearly signaling is unlike 2013, with that deep scar still in our memory, we're going to tap on the brakes very, very slowly over time. And that gives 
the market, and I think it gives economic operators comfort. As long as the price pressures don't continue, the real debate here is this going to be transitory or is it going to set in a behavioral pattern? And to that, we'll just have to wait and see. But I think they're doing the right thing here because you can't just, as my old uh, board chairman, Herb Kelleher, founder of Southwest Airlines, used to say, you don't go from wild turkey to cold turkey overnight. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that, that was Herb <laughs> Kelleher for sure. <laughs> What they're doing, they're not taking the punch bowl away. Yeah. They're just diluting its potency over time. Let me ask you this. When, oh, by the way, Kaplan is, your, your buddy Kaplan's going to be on the closing bell today. So you have to tune into that interview too. Um, there <laughs> he is, Robert Kaplan. Three o'clock today, closing bell. Um, <laughs> when does the taper start? Give me a ballpark. When? Well, I'm guessing it starts uh, at your end. So before calendar year 2021 is over, the Fed starts tapering and maybe they put the final thought into everybody's head in Jackson Hole and then they get the idea that they can do it. Does that sound right? I think that sounds like a good pace. Uh, I would be advocating for something along those lines, depending on how the data comes through. It's coming through just nicely presently. So, uh, yes, that's what I would remember. The balance sheet will be over eight point one trillion soon. It's 7.99 or whatever the heck it is right now. So you keep adding for a couple of months, you're going to end up with a very nice balance sheet. I know market operators, according to the New York Fed, are discounting a possibility of the balance sheet peaking at $9 trillion next year, the end of next year. We'll see. Well, that shows you a slowdown rate. So I think this is being discounted now. That's my point. And we know where they're going. The question is when. And with what speed? And I would suggest the speed will be <laughs> very slow in order not to create turbulence. It is now that we're recovering the economy. You don't want to upset the economy and undermine confidence. So let, let me ask you this. Um, how is the Fed and do they care about changes in fiscal policy around the time where they're when they're thinking about changes in monetary policy? And I, I bring that up because there was a Wall Street Journal exclusive headline not that long before we came on the air today that said Biden's budget is said to assume capital gains tax increases started in April. In other words, retroactive. And now, look, we're a long way from the finish line of where this is going to go. But if you have a scenario in which you get a, a sizable tax increase at the same time you're going to get a sizable monetary policy decrease, I wonder what they're thinking about that. Well, first of all, if you have tax increases and you're advocating for higher minimum wages, which you have to pay, there are 8 million jobs out there that people won't take right now. And you're also pushing more regulation and you're adding on top of that an effort to get more unionization that adds to cost factors. And that would be another inflationary input into the way businesses operate while they're trying to recover from these uh, supply crimps and the kind of commodity price and pressure and others that they're seeing right now. So I don't, I think it would be an offset. Remember it's to be gentle. And you also have enormous amount of money being pumped into the system or loans being made to the U S government simultaneously. So I, I don't see, I would be arguing at the table if that were the case, if these huge numbers come through, depending on how they come through over time, 
that that doesn't mean we should change the course of monetary policy. In other words, we shouldn't refrain from very, very slowly, gradually, deliberately reducing accommodation. And let the market, let's have some price discovery here. And that's why I keep saying the direction is upward on yields. The question is the speed with which it proceeds. Right, right. You're the best. I love the conversations. It's been a while, too. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see you soon. Richard Fisher, thank you. All right. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you take care. All right. If you had listened to our own Jim Labenthal, the farmer Jim, earlier this week about Boeing, you'd be in the money today. It is the best performing Dow stock. And this week, we will debate that trade coming up next. Touched on it at the top. We'll go deeper next. And a reminder, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We're back on the half right after this. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. Welcome back. I'm Leslie Picker, and here's your CNBC News update at this hour. Christine Wormuth is once again the first female secretary of the Army. The Senate confirmed her yesterday, but moments later, Senator Schumer rescinded the nomination without offering an explanation. This morning, the Senate reconfirmed Wormuth, Schumer's office, saying it was a clerical error. The Department of Homeland Security has set cybersecurity standards for pipeline operators. They must now report any incidents, any cyber incidents within 12 hours. They'll also need a cybersecurity coordinator available at all times to respond to attacks. What else needs to be done to secure the nation's pipelines and what other industries may need to improve their defenses? Tonight on the News with Shepard Smith. And the FDA has approved a new imaging tool to find advanced prostate cancer. The new scanner will make it easier to target and treat cancer even after it spreads into bones. And taking a step away from extinction, three giant river otter pups have been born in a zoo in Argentina. This particular breed of otter was once believed to be extinct. Illegal hunting and habitat loss led to its decline. They certainly are cute. Back over to you, Scott. Love the animal videos. Can't go wrong. Leslie Picker, wrong. thank you very much. All right, let's talk Boeing. It is leading the Dow today. It is leading this week. It's up 6%. Now, Farmer Jim Labenthal, I gave you all sorts of love at the top, and that was great and all that. But now it's Brenda's turn because Brenda has owned the stock since September of 2020, and it's only up 45% since then. So if you were to listen to Brenda, I know we teased if you were to listen to Jim, but if you were to listen to Brenda too, you'd be making some money as well. Is the worst fully behind this stock, Brenda? I think it absolutely is, even compared to where, certainly compared to where we were in September of last year, where we've had more and more clarity, just about the 730 max viability. And I think that is really the key, right? Production there is the key to the the free cash flow story here. So I think to the extent that we're kind of on the cusp of starting to see more positive momentum and perhaps positive surprise on the number of planes out for delivery or in the the pipeline for delivery out in 2022 and beyond, I think this is a good moment uh, for the stock and that should continue to support the stock price. Now it's your turn, Farmer Jim, because it was your final trade on Tuesday. 
you've owned it for a while. I don't know what level you got in or where it is up since then, um, but you think it's going much higher. I guess that's the bottom line. Yep. $300 before year end. So this is not today's final trade. This is my right now trade. Go go buy Boeing, okay? $300 by year end. Sentiment has clearly changed. We're focused on positive news like Airbus increasing production orders. Uh, there's my fire alarm because this is so hot, Scott. This stock is so hot that the fire alarm's going off. The fire Gotta alarm buy again? Again? <laughs> well, you weren't on. It was Sully Man. when it went that, off before. You know what? That's good. That's good anyway, because I, I got to take a break. So you deal with that. We'll come back in a little bit. <laughs> up next, John's latest trades and unusual activity. J Jim will get his fire alarm figured out. And we'll see you in two minutes. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close? or travel somewhere far away. At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. All right, unusual activity. Dr. J, what do you got? Uh, Scott Pags, P-A-G-S. They bought about 5,500 of the June 50 calls with the stock just under 49, Scott. So that's obviously a bullish trade uh, in the short term. I'll probably be in that trade about three weeks. Second trade, GoGo. These are the guys that provide Wi-Fi up there in the air. The more of us that get back to flying again, the more demand there is for that. GoGo, they bought 10,900 of the June 15 calls with the stock just over $13. So they're looking for some pretty good upside. I am too. And this is another trade that probably about three weeks I'll be in this one, Scott. Dr. J, John Najarian, thank you very much. Coming up next, how a small upstart hedge fund took on America's biggest oil company and won, and what that now means for investing in Exxon and other big oil stocks. We're going to tell you next. Welcome back. It used to be that activists needed a significant stake or at least brand recognition to take on a large cap company. That all went out the window yesterday with Exxon and hedge fund engine number one. Leslie Picker has been all over this story. And what people are saying, Les, is a watershed moment. A watershed moment for the energy industry, but also for activism. It used to be, Scott, when we would come on and, and do these chats, we'd have to delineate uh, the term shareholder activism as one thing. And, you know, maybe a political activist is something else. Well, those two 
terms were blurred in the case of engine number one and Exxon because it was that climate activism message, both from a political standpoint, as well as a shareholder standpoint, as well as a profit seeking standpoint that was enabled engine number one to get enough shareholders on board uh, to elect at least two of its nominees to the Exxon board, potentially a third. And I think that messaging, especially now, is, is very critical. Wondering for the panel, Brenda Vangelo, if you think this is a new era now in investing in big oil, right? It was like, okay, I'm not going to buy any of these stocks before because of ESG and all this other stuff. And now you got engine number one, David beating Goliath, and maybe more of a focus now on ESG for big oil. Does that make them more investable maybe than they have been in, in many, many years? Yeah, I think this is an interesting study in ESG because one of the really hard things with ESG investing is to really measure outcomes. To the, to the extent that you have a company like Exxon and a firm like Engine One who really comes in to enact change and then we see that change enacted and it can be measured, that's important. So I think that this does open up a window uh, for ESG investors to start to invest in some of these industries that might be dirty, but you know, making them cleaner is is could be certainly part of an ESG mandate. The the other idea, Leslie, and, and I'd love your thoughts on this too, is as you cover activism so closely, the index funds mm-hmm. and what the future of index fund voting is going to be. Yeah, so this is a really interesting topic, Scott, because in 2020 in particular, you had a lot of the parent companies for the biggest index funds out there, the biggest ETFs out there, coming on the record and basically saying we support sustainability initiatives. They've built up these ETFs and these index funds specifically devoted to ESG factors or what they determine to be ESG factors. As a result, now that they're on the record as doing this, now that they have a big business uh, in exposing themselves to sustainability initiatives, it's going to be a lot harder for them to vote against situations like we saw with Exxon. And I think that is part of the reason why we saw uh, engine number one become victorious here is they they timed it perfectly. Exxon was going through a period of turmoil. You had all of these major shareholders that had said publicly that they supported sustainability. Well, if you run a campaign seeking to make it a cleaner company, you kind of back them into a corner in order to vote your slate. Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, it's hard if you're a Larry Fink to write write letters about sustainability and better corporate governance and then have BlackRock vote against right. something like this. So your point's well taken. We'll see what happens in the future. Leslie, thank you. Ask Halftime's coming up next. Send your questions by video. We'll play them on the air. You can email us, askhalftime at CNBC.com when we come back. Okay, we're answering your questions now. First up, Farmer Jim, video question for you. Hey, good afternoon, Halftime team. This is Tim from Texas, and I'm looking at Maxar Technologies, M-A-X-R. I'm an old military guy and like to put back some investment into some of the military stocks. What do you think? Okay, an area near and dear to Farmer Jim. Yeah, you bet, Tim. Thanks for the call. Thanks for your service. Uh, I am a very big believer in aerospace and defense right now, and it's hard to miss the rally that's been going on in the Northrop Grumman's and Lockheed Martin's of the world. You want to be in Maxar Technology, which is small cap stock. I applaud you. Please do your homework. I don't know that particular name. The one thing that worries me, $2.4 billion of debt. Make sure they can cover that. But I like this space. I like mid-cap defense, so go for it, Tim. All right. Thank you. Doc, let's watch this video. 
Hello guys, uh, Penn, DraftKings or RSI, which is your favorite and why? I'm in all three. Thank you. What do you think, John Nigerian? Uh, uh, Penn would be my favorite as well um, because of the exposure they get through Dave Portnoy and the Barstool guys. But I love DraftKings as well, Scott. So that's a really tough coin flip. I guess I'll go with Penn first. DraftKings second. Okay, Brenda, Kathleen in New Jersey writing, I bought my husband shares of American Tower. It's done nothing but move lower since then. Should I sell or hold? Do you believe he should divorce me? <laughs> well, I think you should keep both AMT and your marriage. Um, <laughs> I know AMT has been frustrating over the last year. I'm not sure how long you've owned it, uh, but, you know, still a major um carrier within the U.S., all three major carriers are all build, continuing to build out their infrastructure to support 5G. So I think that's a trend that's absolutely going to continue. The company also has a lot of exposure outside the U.S. where similar trends are happening in many developing markets as 4G is being built out. So I think there's still a great story here. I would continue to hold the stock. Okay, good stuff. Thank you. Final trades are coming up next. Okay, we're back tonight. I hope you'll join me. I'm hosting the news on CNBC as the country reopens. The travel rush begins. We're going to cover what to expect from the highways to the runways, plus behind a daring rescue caught on camera in Texas. You don't want to miss that. You will not believe the video. That's the news with Shepard Smith tonight, 7 o'clock Eastern. That's right here on CNBC. Final trades, Brenda. Uh, CBS still really like this one. A great play on healthcare costs coming down over the longer term. Stock has perked up nicely this year. I think there's a lot more to go. Okay, Farmer Jim. Viacom CBS. Stevie Wonder, you should be in this with me. Where are you? Viacom <laughs> CBS. All right. That's the next fire alarm stock, Scott. <laughs> yeah. Everything okay, by the way, Jim? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now you check. Yeah, I yes, know. Yes, it's fine. They're killing me. Thank They're you. killing me on Twitter for not asking you if everything was okay. It's just like when you've been through the rodeo a few I times. I love you, and you I know you love assume. me too. <laughs> All right, Steve Weiss. <laughs> <laughs> Volkswagen. I mean, I look at Ford selling so 25 times this year's earnings. When you got Volkswagen at eight times, and then you got the Europe reopening and China, mm -hmm. we're the leading seller of cars. So to me, that's mm -hmm. balance right. I think you can own it for years All to right. come. All right, Dr. J. Dropbox, DBX, Scott. I bought upside calls in this Actually, one Doc, during I've got, the show. I, 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 forgive Big me. I've got to interrupt you. I'm going to go to the hearing now. Maxine Waters is beginning the questioning of the bank CEOs. These low-cost tones. But let me just ask. Uh, we have, you know, supported forbearance. And some of you certainly have been very good at doing that. However, we're getting a lot of concerns about homeowners, many of whom have lived in their homes for 15 and 20 years. And because of the pandemic, uh, they found themselves with difficulty. They were laid off from their jobs. Uh, the jobs closed down or uh, whatever. They could not afford to pay their mortgages in the same way that they had been doing for many, many years. And we had forbearance in the CARES Act, I believe, and also uh, in the uh, American Relief Plan. Now that foreclosure um, moratorium ends around June 30th for those who have been into forbearance. I wanna know from each of you, how many of you are going to offer uh, the uh, these uh, homeowners 
an opportunity for loan modifications, real loan modifications. That even if they don't know about them, are you going to initiate them? Are you going to deal with them in ways that will help save their homes and avoid foreclosure? Let me start right out with Jamie Diamond. Yes, sir. Uh, can you tell me uh, whether or not you are going to employ uh, the kind of operation that we won't have to get into a confrontation about, uh, that we don't have to try and do something in law? You are going to initiate this program. Well, I can't promise you that because I don't know the details, but we don't like foreclosing on people. We give modifications. We have plans. We'll work with everyone and where appropriate. We will not be foreclosing on people. I do want to point out there are some appropriate where the homes are vacant, the people have been paying for years, they're vacation homes, they're second homes. So where appropriate, you can expect us to bend over backwards to help those folks stay in their homes. Thank you very much, Mr. Diamond. I described uh, the kind of homeowner uh, that would be looking for a loan modification. I didn't talk about any houses that were boarded up and no one was there and all of that. I took an opportunity to describe that. I'm going to hold you to it. Uh, let me go on to Ms. Frazier. Um, thank you very much, Chairwoman Waters. Uh, we do no, we no longer um, service our own mortgages. We do so with um, our part, with partners now. We require that they follow GSE and federal guidelines on these matters, and they all and we only work with people that have good um, best practices in uh, in these in these matters. Okay, so you're going to be offering loan modifications. People don't have to, uh, you know, not know about them. You will be offering them. Is that right? We will be ensuring that our partners provide that. Yes. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Monahan. Uh, Chair, uh, Chairwoman Waters, we have already modified a bunch of these loans, and the good news is uh, a lot of them also have paid off uh, through normal things. A lot of them come current, so yes, we'll continue to modify them, because as Mr. Diamond said, the last thing we like to do is to take someone who can pay us uh, through foreclosure. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.